0: This week we're excited. Another guest speaker. Don't worry. After this, you'll be stuck with me for a while. Um, but we have, as part of the Grace Brother and Churches, we have a fellowship of churches that that kind of get together. We say we believe the same things about the Bible, a similar heart for people and for the Lord and for His mission. Called the Fellowship of Grace Brother and Churches. And then there's actually a global movement of Grace Brother and Churches that's going on. And uh, and we have an organization that kind of helps us uh, bring those missionaries and those churches. To Together to kind of concert those efforts. It used to be called Grace Brother International Missions. More recently, it's been called Encompass World Partners. And we have the privilege today of the having the director of our church's uh, mission Encompass uh, coming up here all the way from Atlanta, Georgia. Didn't bring. Any of the nice weather with him whatsoever. Uh, but either way, we're glad he's here with his wife, Sue. He and da- Dave Giles and Sue Giles have been up for the week. They were trying to see all of Alaska. So far, God has been hiding it with all of our precipitation and rain clouds. Uh, but we're glad that they're here nonetheless. So, uh, Dave's going to be coming up this morning just to share a little bit about uh, sharing from the Word and what God is doing in the world. Sometimes it's easy just to, you know, we're here and God's doing great things. The church has been growing like gangbusters, and that's exciting right here in Soldatna, but he's also doing incredible things worldwide, and we want to press in to that mission. That's what Jesus left us with. Go and make disciples of all nations, not just Soldatna, Kenai, and even Nikiski. Um, So if you would, with me, give a warm Peninsula Grace welcome to Dave Giles.
1: Well, thanks. Good morning. Good to be with you. And yeah, God has hidden your beautiful state from us, but... uh, We trust that we'll be able to see it at some other uh, point in time. Hey, I want to focus with you this morning on this word, the word uh, relentless, and ask this question, what does it look like if we are relentless in our pursuit of Jesus Christ? What does it look like to be relentless in pursuit of what He feels is most important in our world? Now, the word relentless, all of us know, it's a common word, it's used a lot. In fact, I did a little research and discovered there's at least... 25 rock albums with the title relentless didn't listen to them all but you can imagine that'd be a good title for a rock album Uh, a number of books with that title relentless and i thought it was really interesting that when coca-cola was trying to figure out a name for their new energy drink for great britain guess what label they put on it they called it relentless. We got any Red Bull fans out there? Anybody drink that kind of stuff? Well, this has twice the pack, tw- twice the punch of a can of Red Bull. So you drink this in the morning and you will be relentless. throughout. <laughs> Look out for me. I mean, here I'm coming through and uh, get out of my way. So that idea of relentless. What does relentless mean? Well, we can define it this way. Uh, showing or promising no abatement of severity, intensity, strength, or pace. What's the next word? Unrelenting. That's the idea behind this word relentless. You know, I can think of probably no greater honor to bestow on a follower of Jesus Christ than to say she's relentless in her pursuit of God. Or he's relentless in trying to share the good news of Jesus Christ uh, with people with whom he comes in contact. That idea of relentless. And I want to illustrate what relentless looks like through the story of my good friend Daji Samwell. So let's jump into that. And we're going to look at his story and then weave some scripture in uh, uh, with that story uh, this morning. And I, I trust that as we leave here, we'll have a better understanding as to what relentless might look like in our own lives as followers of Jesus Christ. So Daje is uh, a Central African. He's from this region in the heart of Africa, the country of Chad. He was born in 1962, right along that southern border you can see there with the Central African Republic. Now, we ought to know a little bit about this country of Chad if this is going to make sense to us. Chad is an extremely arid country. In fact, two-thirds of the country of Chad is considered Sahara Desert. And he's a little bit below that in this, uh, in this uh, bottom area there. But Chad is also... a uh, a rather poor country the average uh, family lives on about $160 a month so i mean it's 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 pretty poor that way uh, chad's a young country uh, half the population is 17 years of age or younger so it just seems like there's children everywhere it's not that well educated about 1 in 4 people know how to read and uh, chad has oil and uh, the fact that chad has oil means that some people are getting really really rich But a lot of people are actually getting more poor as a result of all of those uh, multinational interests coming in there. The wealth isn't getting spread around uh, very well. But uh, while Chad is economically poor, it's really rich in ethnic diversity. And so anthropologists tell us that the first uh, uh, human beings probably entered that region of Chad about 7,000 years uh, before Jesus. And today we would count 140 some what we call people groups or ethnic groups. That means that uh, whoever you are in Chad, there's 139 groups there that you'd say that's not us. They're different than we are. And, and of those groups, about 60% are Muslims. So they would follow Muhammad and the God of Islam. And then there's some Christians in there as well. And then there's some groups we call animists, which are more like tribal beliefs. And it was into one of those tribal families that Daje was born. Now, as a young boy, he heard that there was going to be a Sunday school in his village. And he decided he wanted to go to that. So imagine this little boy, six, seven years old, and he goes to this Sunday school, and there for the first time, he hears the good news of Jesus Christ. And he thinks this is pretty cool. And he arrives home, and he's excited uh, to tell his father about it, and his father responds, he's just absolutely furious. He just tries to shut the whole thing down. He says, "Da Jay, that's the white man's religion. I prohibit you from ever talking to those people again. In fact, if I ever see you close to them, I'm going to beat you within an inch of your life. That's pretty rough for a six-year-old, right? Get that kind of response? But uh, God is actually at work in Daje's life. And as the years go on, in in ways that maybe only young boys can figure out how to do, he sort of sneaks out and finds ways to hang out with the Africans who are teaching about Jesus Christ. And so now he's about nine years old, maybe ten years old, and they say that they want to have a baptism. And Daje says, I want to be baptized because I really believe in Jesus. So once again, he goes home, he talks to his dad, and the response is even worse. In fact, the day for the baptismal comes, and here's what the father does. He he takes Dajay with the mother and sends him out to work in the fields. He wants them as far away, he wants to know where they are when this uh, baptismal service is going on. You guys are having one today, right? Think about that, when you're having this baptismal service, and, and he just really doesn't want his son participating in it and as he tells me the story at a certain moment his mother looks up and sees the father coming and says "Daje, your father's going to kill you today run for your life so here's this little boy with just a shirt you can imagine shorts probably nothing even on his shoes and he knows if he doesn't get out of there he's going to be dead before morning wow and so as he tells the story that evening you know he's alone He's, uh, he's scared, he's trying to figure out what to do next, and he's, he climbs up on this little hill and he looks up and he sees all the stars in the sky. And he cries out to God and he says, from now on, you're the only father that I have. You're the only father that I have. Wow. And I think that's such a great way uh, for us to start our story because when we talk about being relentless... Uh, sooner or later, anyone who desires to be relentless in their pursuit of Jesus Christ is going to come to a a moment in which they have to make some decisions about their priorities. And the way it is for Dodge is he's really literally choosing between his earthly father and his heavenly father. I hope you never have to make that tough of a choice. But the reality is that uh, God will reorder our priorities in fact uh uh it, it says it this way and i skipped up but but are people allowed to read here and talk and stuff is that okay we have permission to okay would you guys read with me what this verse says from scripture let's read it out loud anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those are pretty powerful words, aren't they? I'm going to tell you that on the on the pathway toward becoming relentless in our pursuit of Jesus, He's going to start reordering priorities, even down to the most intimate ones. He's saying, uh, ultimately, what's most important in your life. And so for Diage, he's just a young boy when this becomes a reality. Well, he's living in Africa, and in Africa, the family system is set up a bit different than what we're used to in the West, meaning this, that his uncles and, and aunts, uh, they, they kind of treat them like a father and mother as well, and so one of his uncles takes Adaji into his home and starts to raise him. He's showing a lot of capability, a lot of self-discipline. He's good with his hands. And at age 16, then, he immigrates uh, over to this uh, neighboring country called Nigeria, And uh, and there he gets a job on a construction crew. So he's 16 years old. He's learning the construction business by 18. He's the foreman of the crew. So this guy's a little bit special here, Uh, but he hears that uh, there's a war going on back in his home country. In fact, there's a Muslim issue in the north that's trying to impose its will on the south and he thinks, I've got to go home and stand with my people. And so he heads back uh, and he actually joins the resistance force there in the south and he's fighting uh, this, uh, this war with the people from the north that are coming in. And it's during that time that he meets a young woman named Christine, falls in love with her and they fall into sin. Now, do I like me to unpack that for you guys this morning? No, I don't do I. Okay, and uh, and I think that's a really important part of Dajay's story, because we might fall into the error of thinking if I'm really relentless in my pursuit of Jesus, sin's just not gonna be an issue for me, right? Uh, and and we want to make it really clear that being relentless does not mean you're perfect, but being relentless in your pursuit of Jesus does mean that when you sin. You know you have a choice. You can sort of continue on the same path. You can sort of cover up and say, well, that's, it's just me, you know, and that sort of thing. Or you can be honest. You can fess up about it. And so uh, we're really grateful that Daje and uh, his uh, young bride now, his, uh, his wife, who's going to be a mom here really soon, they decide we're not going to cover things up. We're going to submit to our church and submit to their discipline and humble ourselves because we want to get things right with God. And that's really cool that He does that. Again, being relentless doesn't mean you're perfect. And some of you listening to my voice might be struggling with some sin issues or some past, and God wants to take that. He wants to clean it up. But covering it up isn't really going to move you down this path of pursuing Jesus. And so let's read together what, what John tells us. What a great promise this is. Would you read it with me? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so we're really grateful. Uh, that, he, uh, that he took care of this matter. Well, these southern forces, and he's helping them you know, in their resistance, they're brutally oppressed, and, and probably to escape, uh, re- escape retribution, he takes his wife and his young son now, and they now immigrate to the east, to the country of Cameroon, and there he establishes himself in construction and actually becomes pretty successful. A couple years pass, and, and the churches that he left behind, there's now peace in southern Chad, but there's a lot of destruction and they remember this Dodge guy and that he's pretty, pretty handy with his hands and with organizing. In fact, he's a businessman now. And so they put out a call, come back home, we need you to help rebuild our churches and our homes and, and our country here. And so he responds to that call and he returns uh, uh, to, to his homeland there. Uh, but what's so important about Dodge at this point in his life is he's beginning to realize that although God has given him some talent and some ability it's about more than just making money and being comfortable. He's realizing that whatever gifts God's given him, and I don't know what gifts he's given you, but they're not to consume on ourselves. It's actually through those gifts that God wants to bless other people. And he's realizing there's something bigger God has for me, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. Now, I I want to explain a little about Africa, especially this region. It's something that we call hierarchical, which means everything is really structured in terms of, you know, who's in charge and who's got what power and all that. In America, we say we're egalitarian, which means, you know, that we're sort of, uh, we try to treat each other equally. So I'm gonna just tell you. And if in Africa as a pastor, if you ever showed up with shorts, they would say you can't be a pastor because pastors, you know, they have to sort of lift this. Thing. And here we just say, "Oh, that's kind of cool." My pastor wears shorts, right? just very different. I think. Do you think it's cool? I hope you think it's cool because I thought it was kind of cool. Trying to You're trying to fix it, all right. But, uh, but it's very structured. And so as a businessman, even though he's successful, he can't really sort of break that glass ceiling and, and advance in the church unless he quits his job and goes to Bible school. And he says, well, I'm not going to do this because people need... The work that I provide for them, and so our, our missionaries at that time they become creative and they actually create this thing. It's a it's a Bible Institute for businessmen like them because as they train him, and then as he gets his certificate, that allows him in this society to begin to be able to occupy some positions in the church that otherwise society wouldn't let him do because he didn't follow the traditional path, you know, of becoming a pastor and uh, and I, I love his uh his methods are kind of old you know we don't really use them now but here he is he's using what he's got and so what he would do is he told me is he tells me a story you know he would show up at a church like this one imagine this and all the churches in that region have choirs and he would pull up with one of his construction trucks and when the service is out he would say, oh choir i got something for you get on my truck because we're going to go evangelize today and he'd drive out to a village and they'd start to sing and this part of Africa at this point, I mean, there's nothing going on. There's nothing, nothing. And so you see this choir show up and start to sing. You say, well, there's entertainment today. And it, the whole crowd would gather and he'd pull out his little pulpit and he'd preach and he started, to, he started churches in this way, you see. And so this guy is taking advantage of, uh, of those opportunities. And, and I, I think that's an important thing for us too on this journey of becoming relentless in our pursuit of Christ because there are times when we think, I hope you don't fall into this error. But there's times we think, well, God, I want to do something for you, so make it big and make it important. You know, I want to do something small, right? I want to do something big with my life. And, And it's so good to see the way Daji understood this passage. So read it together with me. What's it say in Luke? Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Isn't that a great principle? He understood that he's supposed to take advantage of the opportunities that are before him today. I hope you're not one of those believers that says, well, you know, when God shows me something really big, maybe I'll you just... what am I supposed to do today for God? What are, the, what are the opportunities? What are the resources? What are the open doors that God's putting in front of me today? And God says, be faithful with that. And then we'll see where I take you. You know, as a result of you going through those open doors, and so uh, I think that Daji illustrates that for us. Well, all over the next eight years, that's what he's working at, and all this now radically changes in uh, 1998 because Dajee is actually invited to come to the U.S. to get some training on how to how to train uh, how to start other small businesses to bring work to people in the church and all those kind of cool things that are going on today in missions. But on his way to the U.S. He has to stop for two weeks at this kind of cool place. This is a retreat center that we own. Our movement owns in southern France. And uh, the reason he had to stop there is because he's traveling with another pastor from Africa. And so this pastor's got to go to a clinic And uh, Daji is going along, so he's just kind of there. And remember that hierarchical thing I'm talking about? So we had gathered maybe 30 key African leaders for some special training. And so the time comes for the training to start. And one of our guys looks out and says, well, I thought this guy named Daji was here. And the pastors say, yeah, he's here. Well, why isn't he in the room? No, he's not one of us. We told him he had to wait outside. That's that hierarchical stuff, you know, which is kind of hard for us to understand. Well, this guy who was leading it says, you know, uh, I think he ought to be brought in here. And what he heard during those two weeks absolutely transformed his life and his understanding about ministry. And so when he returned then from that trip... Uh, to Africa, uh, things really started to happen in a new way. Now, I put this picture up here, because I want to tell you that Dodge is the guy on the right, and the other guys are the, Af- or the African leaders from Chad on the left. Doesn't it feel like he's kind of added into the picture? That not it look like they were taking pictures, and somebody said, oh, well, maybe Dodge, and, he, and he's not even sure if he belongs, right? So that's a little bit of, the, of this uh, barrier that he's got to overcome as he's uh, trying to reach out here and uh, to see where God takes this. But uh, I first met Daji then, uh, my wife and I had been church planners in Argentina for a number of years, and then in the year 2000, I became the director of Encompass World Partners, and so here I am taking a trip to Africa, and I heard about this guy, and now I'm meeting it. Imagine this, I get off the plane in the heart of Africa, and he says, uh, we got to go somewhere, and so he gets me into his truck, and he takes me out to some remote place, I don't know where, he says, we're having the first Sunday of a new church here, Dave, and you're going to preach. Say, whoa, this is like crazy. I'd rather just listen, right? He said, no, no, you're the, you're the dignitary. Remember that hierarchical thing? So you got to be the one that preaches. And so we pull into this little town, this little village, and all these people gather, and I realize he's been planting a church here. He's been sharing the gospel, and he's been discipling people, and leaders are starting to emerge. And so this is their first Sunday of worship. And so we've got these ladies in this choir thing, you know, doing this cool deal. And then it's my turn to preach, and I'm preaching in English. So I'm the guy, i the handsome guy on the left there, okay? And uh, and see the tie that I have on? Do you see that? Okay, I want you to see I want you to fix that in your brain, okay? Because that's Africa. And I'm hot, you know, it's like 120 degrees. And I'm preaching in English, and the guy next to me translates it to French, and then the guy next to him translates it to Laka, and by that time I've forgotten what I'm talking about. I'm telling you, it's just, it's just like, wow, just listen to these guys. Somehow I get through this sermon, I want to tell you this, I do not know what I preached on that day. I don't remember. This is 17 years ago. And I'm confident nobody else remembers it either. I'm, I'm not saying that you know to be humble or anything. It's just a reality. But something happened at the end of that service that has marked me, and I will never forget that. Because we're done with the service, and this little African girl comes up, and she hands me these four stalks of guinea corn. It's part of the food that they eat there. And there's four different colors... And here I am, I'm not knowing the language, I'm not knowing the culture, I just got off the plane, and I'm like, what do I do? Am I supposed to eat it? Am I, is it my honorarium for preaching? Or, uh, and Dodge and comes up, he says, no, I just want to tell you the commitment that this new church is taking on. Now, how, how old was the church? This is like their first formal Sunday, right? He said, and here's the commitment of our church, that we want to be used to take the good news of Jesus Christ to four of the countries that surround us. I'm looking at this. I'm looking at this girl. I'm looking at these kids who are really, really poor. And they're playing with the toys that you probably wouldn't want your kids or grandkids to touch. And I'm thinking, this is really amazing. This is the way it's supposed to be. Because they're not looking at their limitations. They're saying, if God is in us, we actually can do something really significant. Something eternally significant. And so as he unpacked that, then he explained to me, so Chad is there, and he said, we want to be used of God to take the gospel into these four neighboring countries. And I thought, wow, that is amazing. It really makes me think back to to Jesus Christ after his resurrection. And he gathers his 11 apostles, because Judas isn't there now, You know, he's killed himself. So he's got 11 apostles and a few other stragglers there, and Jesus looks at them, and he says, I want you to preach to every person on planet Earth. Is that like a big vision or what? I'm sort of thinking, this is about the same challenge here, isn't it? As I look at this village. And it reminds us that being relentless is going to involve embracing a God-sized strategy. If you are relentless in your pursuit of Jesus, and you're being faithful in the things He puts in front of you, I'm going to tell you, I promise you this, He's going to keep opening it up more and more. And it's gonna, you're going to reach point you you say, I can't do that. He's going to say, yeah, you can't, can you? but with me, we can do some pretty amazing things, right? And so he's ready to embrace this God-sized strategy. Let's read this passage. Probably some of you can recite it from memory, but uh, to make sure we're all using the same version of the Bible, let's just read it together, okay? What did Jesus say? Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You see some pretty big challenge in there for like 11 people? You're to go and make disciples of all... They didn't even know who all the nations were at that point. And and you're going to baptize them and you're going to teach them everything I've ever said to you. This is like crazy. This is a God-sized strategy. And yet these men embrace that and the church, because of that, has just continued to spread all around the world, even today. And Dodge knew that, and he wanted to plant that deep into the DNA of this new church, which I just think is amazing. Well, here's some things that I've learned from him over the years. In about 10 years, he and I working close together. Uh, first off, he realized that if it's a God-sized vision, he's not supposed to achieve it by himself. Now, did you catch me on that? If God's giving you a God-sized vision, you're going to realize, I need the Holy Spirit, but I need other people too because this is something I'm not supposed to do on my own. So when he returned then from his trip, his, his very important trip to this chateau in France and the trip to the U.S. and all that changed his life, the first thing he does is he builds his own chateau, which is kind of cool, out of his own money. And so he builds that and he turns this into a training center. And so here's what he does. He would he, bring these people in, uh, the key uh, young people, and he would train them for 10 weeks and then send them out for 10 months. And the ones that did the work, that started new churches and got things going and were faithfully, pull them back in, train them some more, and send them out and pull them in. He's been, that's been happening every year since, uh, since 1999. And so uh, here we are uh, just sort of trying to figure out what the impact of this is. In, in, in 1998, when he started, we had 78 churches that were a part of our family in Chad. Today there's 350 and continuing to grow. Because he understood a God-sized vision is something you, do, you can't do alone. We're going to have to invest in other people. And this thing's going to have to multiply and move out from there. Well, remember those four stalks of guinea corn? Let's uh, talk about some other things that I learned uh, from him. Uh, so here I am, uh, and he, is, uh, he, he, uh, he and I are meeting together. This is 2009, and it's outside that chateau under a mango tree. And uh, he lays out this map. And uh, I'm trying to figure out what's going on with this map. And, he, and so he says, uh, these are all of the places, a hand-drawn thing there, these are all the places in which our group is starting new churches. And uh, I really want you guys uh, to work with us because uh, as we start lots of churches here, we can become a barrier to stop the advance of Islam as it tries to come from Northern Africa down there. And as I mentioned, now uh, you know hundreds of, of small churches and some bigger churches that are scattered throughout the, that part of the our part of the world. But let's go back to our map and back to those four stalks of guinea corn. Uh, the first uh, stalk I want to talk about is Nigeria. So 2006, Daje is now ready. He's got this thing working in his own country and things are moving out well. And he says, I'm now ready to take some people and pursue this idea of planting churches in the country of Nigeria. Uh, well, how'd that go, Daji? He said, well, those are three of the toughest months of my life. He goes there because he wants to learn English. That's uh, a main language there. And he wants to perfect his English. And he's testing the soil. And he's just finding enormous spiritual resistance He's praying and calling out to God saying, what do I do here? I don't know know where to start. It's just so different than where I live. And it's at the very end of his trip that he meets this young woman. And uh, she's been married for about 13 years, but she's not able to have children. And that's a hard thing for a lady. It's a hard thing for a couple. But in Africa, in this region, so much of a woman's value is tied into her ability to produce kids. And so she knows that her husband's thinking about divorcing her. And she's really desperate, and she, she shares his adage, and he says, well, I can't fix that, only God can, but I will pray for you. Can I pray for you? And he commits to pray for her. And he leaves Nigeria a little bit discouraged. Comes back a year later, and this uh, lady introduces him to her three-month-old son. And she says, my husband really wants to meet you. And, uh, and they, get, they get a church going. And today we have 15 church plants going on in Nigeria, not because of some fantastic strategy or because a lot of money coming in from the West or something clever, just because he said, we're going to pray. We're going to ask God to open doors. He believed in the power of prayer, you see, and that's what got this thing going. And uh, that's the first stalk of guinea corn. Uh, the second one we're going to talk about is the country of Cameroon. Now, Cameroon's had the gospel for a lot of years, and we've actually have some churches in Cameroon, but as uh, Dajay visited them, he thought, they don't have much vision for outreach. These churches are sort of trying to fix their own stuff and tweak with their own things and all that, and, and I don't see any passion for the lost here, and he really was puzzled with that, and he kept talking to the leaders and says, yeah, yeah, we need, to, we need to reach out, but we got this problem and, you know, this issue here, and... He just kind of got really weary of that and so he he went after several young people and he invited them to go to his school remember that school I talked about 10 weeks training 10 months practice you know back and forth and he invited these guys and they came and they learned new things about God and new things about God's mission in the world and when they were released back in Cameroon things really started to happen and today we have 46 churches and I don't know how many church plants in Cameroon because Young people got a vision, a vision for what God could do that was a whole lot bigger than their own little church. And so it's really cool to see what's happening today in Cameroon. That's the third stalk of guinea corn. Now, uh, I want to go to, the, to, the, to the second one. I want to go to the third one now. And uh, now he's talking about going over in the co- to the country of Sudan. And uh, this is some of the most remote territory on planet Earth you can imagine. And so in 2008, 2006, he's in Nigeria, 7, he's in Cameroon. 2008, he's ready to go over with an investigative trip to Sudan, and uh, they start out in their truck, and uh, after a while, uh, they can't do the truck anymore, so they hire these bush taxis, and he sends me this picture. That's his hands, you know, holding on to this. Just sort of all lacerated there because of that. And finally, he says, the taxis uh, ran out of gas, so I had to hire a donkey cart. And so he gets to the border of Sudan. He doesn't know if they're going to let him across the border or not, but he's praying, he and his group, and they find a way to get across into Sudan, and they begin to talk to people who live there and discover that even though Islam is the main religion there, uh, these people are weary of, just the, of, of Islam. It just isn't bringing hope. It's not bringing change to them. And they say, would you come back? Would you send people here to tell us about Isa, to tell us about the good news of Jesus Christ? That's pretty amazing because this is a hard area to get to. It's a hard area to get to, okay? Okay. Well, he realizes that the people in Sudan are really different than the ones in Chad. The religion's a little bit different, the way they dress, the, the, just the whole culture's different. So he realizes, like any good missionary, or like any good cross-cultural worker, that he's going to have to train people who adapt to the ways of life of Sudan. And so he starts in his school, he, he singles out seven men, and they're wives and kids and he begins to train them in cross-cultural stuff he says when you go there you're gonna to have to speak a different language you guys are gonna to have to be willing to dress differently you guys are gonna to have to be willing to support yourselves so some of you are going to train to be nurses and others are going to be brick workers and stuff like that because we don't have any we don't have any guarantee we can even send you any money and in fact when you talk about money where does one of the poorest countries on earth even get money to be able to send out their own missionaries but Sidaji thinks like, a, like an apostle from the New Testament. He thinks, God can, God can solve this for us. And I know our people here don't have any money to put in the offering plate, but they know how to farm. So he went to these churches that he was starting, and his group was starting, and he said, what we want you to do is we want you to start a missionary garden. And all you guys work the garden and sell the produce and the, and the crops from the garden, and that's the way you can support missions. And so imagine how I felt, you know, when he sent me this picture and he said, here's our first missionary offering. See, we're going to sell this so that we can support our own missionaries that are going out into a place like Sudan. I thought, wow, this guy understands what it's going to take. He's relentless, isn't he? This guy, he's going to find a way to make this happen. And so uh, not that long after that, uh, seven men and their wives uh, relocated to Sudan. And I remember I met some of them, and I looked them in the eye, and I thought, I'll probably never see you again on planet Earth because it's likely somebody's going to kill you for what you're doing. I remember thinking at a time, and I don't even know if they're all alive today because we sort of lost contact with some of them. But they're over there, and they're working to, to plant these churches. Well, a couple months go by, and I get this really grainy cell phone video thing from sudan africa and i'm thinking what is this and then the words come through and says here's our first baptisms these are the first muslims that have become jesus followers in sudan in fact here's the seven men and the one woman. this is our first church that we're getting started in this in a spiritually really dark part of it. is that cool or what yeah are they allowed to say like or what here yeah it's, 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 is that cool or what <laughs> okay <laughs> all right it's just an amazing thing uh to see the way that god uh is at work here especially when you realize this part of the world uh, we know this uh as it's called the region of Darfur and uh and it's a really uh tough place to live and so we're grateful uh, uh to to uh to to dodge to what god's doing there well i want to go back for a moment to that year when uh when Daji was uh, showing me his maps, and I showed this to you earlier, and he's talking about his strategy. And it, at one point, he uh, starts drawing off the map. And he says, you know what I'm talking about? And I'm looking at it from different I'm trying to remember my geography for Africa. And he says, uh, I'm, I'm drawing here on the ground the northern countries of Libya and Egypt. He says, we've got to get people sent in there to share the goodness of Jesus Christ. But this, if things have been hard till now, this is going to be really hard. And we're going to need Encompass's partnership in this because we've got to train people in ways that they're going to be able to sit down with, with uh, the, the imams from the Muslim world in these cities and debate the scriptures with them and all this sort of stuff. And so I don't have people ready to do that. And so we started working on a partnership to be able to do that uh, uh, together. Uh, but here he is. Uh, this is uh, uh, one of the pictures of Daj. He's getting ready at this point to take a journey north into Libya across the Sahara Desert and his goal is to test the waters and to see what it's going to take to be able to send people up there uh, with the good news of Jesus Christ and uh, it's a pretty interesting journey because he's down to the city of Mundu and uh, so he's bringing another guy with him and they have to go up to the capital city of Jemena And there they need papers, then they're going to get on a plane, they're going to fly over the Sahara Desert, and they're going to go up there north to Libya. But when they get to Jemena, they discover the government offices are on strike, and so they can't get the papers that they need. And they don't know how long this strike is going to last. Uh, But somebody tells them, they say, if you're willing to drive halfway across the Sahara up to this uh, remote place called Faya Largo, they'll give you the paperwork up there. Now this is pretty extreme, men and women, this is really extreme, okay? You're carrying all the water you need for five days, and if you run out, you're dead, literally, okay? And uh, the temperature is about 130 degrees during the day, so you gotta travel at night. And here they are, and they're booking passage on a, on a vehicle like this one. And so you travel at night, and you, you have to be resting in the shade during the day, and finally they get up to Fayol Argo, only to find out that this man lied to them that you can't get the papers up there, that uh, And the only recourse is now is to travel back another five days. So they rest a little bit. They get back on a vehicle like this one. They're driving out of town, and they're a so, little distance, maybe 20 kilometers, about 12, 14 miles out of town, and the vehicle breaks down. And they realize this is really serious. Well, fortunately, somebody's cell phone connects, and some people come out and give them assistance, and they fix the truck, and they start out again, and they get out a little bit farther, it breaks down again. Well, they're able to finally get back to the village or to the city of Faya Largo. And they're sort of figuring out, what are we going to do? And now they, uh, they actually are able to, uh, to book passage on a, on, a, on, a, on a little bit bigger vehicle and uh, get some air conditioning because they're actually in the cab. And so they set out to cross the desert. And they're way out there in the middle of nowhere. And the axle breaks. And now they just know they're all going to die. Wow. Uh, it's kind of interesting to look at the pictures that, that were sent to me because here's DJ at one of the breaks, and he's just a happy guy, and he's uh, helping the camels out, you know, and you can kind of tell as the day goes on, it gets a little bit hotter, and by the end of the day, this guy's not looking so good at all. Uh, but anyway, they're getting ready to go out, and they drive a little farther, and like I said, the vehicle breaks down, and it's really, really serious, and he's not well at all. And the guy that he's with realizes if we don't get him out of here, this guy's going to die. And so fortunately, uh, along comes this kind of transportation. And they're able to get him on top of it. And for 24 hours, they're driving through the Sahara Desert and they're spoon-feeding him water and he's not doing well. And we, they get to a town and they call us and we send a plane in there to pick him up, to evacuate him and to take him to the capital city. And there he is and he's getting some, uh, some attention, some medical attention. And we're all praying for him. In fact, all around the world people know this guy and they love him and they're praying for him. And a couple days go by and then I get the phone call you don't want to get. Because Dodge has died. Wow. Remember the four stalks of guinea corn? He died trying to take care of that fourth stalk, to go up to Libya. Wow. That happened in April, uh, several years ago now. And I remember that in January of that same year, we had sent a note to Daje and we said, we know a lot of people pray for you, and we're going to share a prayer request because we do that. In fact, if you're interested in that, talk to me, talk to Sue. We, like, send out prayer requests every day from our people all over the world, what's going on. You can pray for them. It's really kind of cool to see that you're a part of what they're doing because our family's big. It's spread out a lot of places. It's in 32 countries right now. So, uh, And so we wanted a prayer request from, him, and he sent us something. And I remember the person coming into my office and sharing it with me. And I'm going to share it with you in just a second here. But I remember him sharing that prayer request and me thinking... Wow, what was he thinking about? Did he know that he was going to die just a couple months later? It really takes my thoughts to this passage in Hebrews. Uh, Let's read this one together, okay? What does it say? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus isn't asking us to do anything, to walk any path that He hasn't walked already. And, uh, and in the relentless pursuit of Jesus, there's a price to pay. It doesn't always have a sweet, they lived happily ever after type ending. See? Uh, things are hard. This is a battle that we're in. Now, we know that ultimately victory is ours, but it doesn't mean that every battle, everything happening here on earth is just going to always be cool because God's with us sort of a thing. He's got bigger purposes. And, and here's what uh, Daji had written to me uh, that we sort of were a little puzzled about, and, and I still think about it today. Here's what I said, give us a prayer request, and here's what he wrote. He said, every missionary being sent out signing his death sentence. He must have a very close relationship with God because his days are numbered. Those with a half-hearted commitment cannot do the work. Wow. Well, as I reflect on this, I realize that it would be really easy for us today to sort of ask the why question. Why would God let that happen? I mean, wasn't this guy useful? We all agree with that, right? God was doing some amazing things why and and i've come to the conclusion that god never promises to answer the why question you're not gonna find anywhere in scripture he says whenever something happens in life if you ask why i'll tell you he just doesn't work that way god just is different than that he never promises to ask answer the why question but he does promise to answer this question what now what am i supposed to do next As you think about it, really part of the beauty of the story of Daje is the fact that it reminds us that the job is not done. He's on his way to the fourth objective that he has, and he never makes it. And the only way it's going to happen is if the next generation rises up and takes his place. And that's what's been happening for 2,000 years. See, there's going to be a final person on planet Earth who says, I submit to Jesus, and then we're all out of here, according to what the Bible teaches us. But until that moment happens, it's an unfinished book. And Jesus is saying, I want you to help write this chapter. And no one of us, probably, maybe one person will finally put the period on it, and then we'll be out of here. But I don't think it's going to be me. And the beauty of what we see in his life, and the beauty of what we see through 2,000 years of history, is how God is always opening space for more people. So what's happening now in Chad? Well, now there's two guys, just like and maybe even smarter than him, who have a whole bunch of other guys, and this thing just continues to grow because there's room for more people. Being relentless in our pursuit of Jesus means being willing to pay the ultimate price, but we can also celebrate the reality that there's room for more. And so as we wrap up our thoughts with you this morning... I've got that question for you. You ready to step up? Take the next step. What does that next step look like? Well, let's review what we've talked about here. Some of the things we've learned. Of being relentless means letting God reorder our priorities. Maybe for you, the next step is to say, Jesus, I've been resisting this, but it's okay now. You can start reordering my priorities because without it, I'm not going to have a whole lot to celebrate in eternity. Reordering our priorities. Uh, maybe maybe uh, the next step for you is a recognition that God's not expecting you to be perfect. Don't let the sins of the past or the problems you have now hold you back. Deal with them. and Move on. Because we have a God who heals, who forgives, who transforms, and who says, I believe in you. You really can take the next step. For some of us, it might be being faithful with what's right in front of us. Not dreaming about what we could do if we didn't have so many kids or if our job paid more or when we retire. But rather say, God, what's the open door in front of me today? I want to go through it. For others, it might be time to embrace a goal a whole lot bigger than yourselves. To say to God, "What, what you really put me here on earth for? And if that story has to do with crossing cultures and geography, and language, and religion, well, then that's what we do. We help churches deploy people to do that. What's the God-sized goal? But then finally, are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to say, God, whatever it takes? Because I'll tell you this, in eternity, how long is eternity? Like a really long time, right? Like longer than a long time. I'll tell you this, I'll guarantee it. You you find me in eternity and tell me if I was wrong, but I'm not wrong. In eternity, no one is going to walk around high-fiving other people because they took the easiest possible path to get there. In eternity, we will not be celebrating the folks who said, just let me stay under the radar and not really bother anybody. Just let me get there. I'll tell you what we're going to celebrate. People who were relentless I want you guys to join us in being relentless would you pray with me thank you father God for what we learned through the life of this man he wasn't perfect I mean, I knew him he wasn't perfect but wow he was focused he was relentless and he was willing to make good choices And we celebrate that today, but more than celebrating a man, we want to celebrate Jesus who enables and calls every one of us to be relentless. And I pray that every person hearing my voice today would take the next step down that pathway. And I ask these things because of the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.